I have failed to find a version of today's scripture that specifically references forgiveness from flip-flown abuse. So we'll go with the NIV instead. It does come in two verses from Isaiah today, starting with chapter 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. And then the 44th chapter, verse 22. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is the word of the Lord. Those are some powerful words. I hope you saw them and took them to heart. What was the origin of this sermon anyway? Some time ago I was musing on God's forgiveness and I found myself in Isaiah because I knew that there were some passages about forgiveness there and I opened to where uh, chapters 43 and 44 were together. Same page if you took this as a unit. And I found chapter 43 uh, verse 25 and then chapter 44 verse 22 and they seem to me to be just powerful bookends. So if you want to open your Bibles, you probably have them there on the same full page. And if you don't, we have it up on the screen, so don't worry about that. But uh, I found these to be powerful bookends talking about God's initiative in our forgiveness, how He forgives us. And obviously our need for forgiveness for our failures, we, we all have failures. We have failures in our careers, whether it's business or law or teaching or homemaking or whatever it might be, but usually we would prefer to keep quiet about it. Well, not Princeton professor Johannes Haushofer. Uh, Here he is up here. He recently shared his CV on Twitter and added it to his own online CV. Now, for those of you who don't know, a CV is curriculum vita. It's the fancy academic way of saying resume. Okay, so this is his CV, but this is his CV not of successes but of failures, And he actually put it on Twitter, and it says, uh, has different uh, categories like degree programs I did not get into, research funding I did not get, paper rejections from academic journals. Now, why, why did he do that? He was interviewed by CNN, and he said, well, most of what I try fails, but these failures often are kept invisible while successes are visible. He said, I've noticed that this sometimes gives others the impression that most things work out for me. He says, projecting only success and never recognizing recognizing failure has damaging effects. He says, this CV of failures is an attempt to balance the record and provide some perspective. Well, you and I could use that kind of perspective. We have our own CV of failures and sins and shortcomings for sure. And it's funny because he says this one CV of failures has received more attention than all his academic work over the years, which I find interesting. But why might that be? I think because people appreciate his honesty, his truthfulness about his failures, which we need to acknowledge and admit. It's not always easy to do, but we've got to be honest about our sins and our shortcomings. We need to be honest about our need for God's Forgiveness, because that's really only where real forgiveness occurs, from the pure, holy, sovereign God of all things. That is the only source of true, lasting forgiveness. 
And so we come to Isaiah 43, 25 and 44, 22. And again, it's a wonderful depiction of God's initiative. First of all, look at chapter 43, verse 25, where he says, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake. And I will never think of them again. This is, this is interesting. I and I, I alone. Powerful words in the Hebrew. I alone. He's saying, I am the sovereign God who alone can give you that lasting forgiveness. Only I can really do that. And again, he forgives not because he has to, but because he chooses to do so. You know, sometimes we see forgiveness as this insincere transactional act where if in a shallow way we will just ask God's forgiveness, he's going to forgive us in a way that we desire him to. Uh, maybe he'll give us a razor phone as well. I like that. We'll move from a, from a flip phone to a razor phone. But it's that kind of mindset we have where if we just in some superficial action you know, ask his forgiveness, we, we assume, presume that we're going to be forgiven. And that really is presumptuous of us. That's what Bonhoeffer again t- called what cheap grace. He's not at all obliged to forgive us, but he is absolute in his grace that only he can give. And there's nothing bilateral about it. We've got to keep that in mind. You can think of Romans 5, 8. For God shows his love for us that what? While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. That is not a bilateral event. That is completely unilateral. We had nothing to do with it. It's from his own pure, loving initiative. We don't deserve it. We should never fool ourselves into thinking that on some level, on any level, we do deserve it. God, yes, God alone can only forgive through his initiative in the way that we so desperately need it. But do we, do, do we always realize that? Because sometimes we hint to ourselves that maybe we're, we're good enough to receive it. I appreciate Byron Rorig, who was a Methodist minister in the 20th century, and he had a man come to his pastor's office because the man was concerned that he had committed the unpardonable sin, thought that he had committed a sin that was beyond God's grasp of grace, to which Pastor Rorig said this, you can never be too bad for God to forgive you, only too good. Let me say that again. You can never be too bad for God to forgive you, only too good. Because sometimes, folks, we are like the Pharisee in that parable, saying, I thank you, my God, that I'm not like those sinners over there. And for some reason, we feel like we have a claim on the throne of God and his mercy, and we do not. We don't at all. We're not good enough to be saved. We should be like the publican in that same parable who beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's amazing when you and I realize the magnitude of God's forgiveness. What does he say in verse 25 again? I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake. What is he saying there? For my own sake I do that. Does he have selfish motives in that? No. Absolute opposite, actually. Uh, think about the 23rd Psalm. What, what does it say there? Uh, he leads me in paths of righteousness for, can somebody fill in the blank? For his name's sake. Oh, y'all are good. Leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Really, the same Greek wording here. And what he's saying is, I'm going to put my name on the line for you. I'm going to lay it down there for you. And I will never betray my word to you. Now that alone is reason to give God glory, isn't it? You know, the, the primary effect of God forgiving us is his being 
glorified for forgiving us. And again, he doesn't need it. Doesn't have to have it. But our chief end should be because of this unconditional God who is showering his grace upon us. Our chief motive should be what? What is the chief end of man if you grew up with that, with that catechism? Is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Give him glory for that forgiveness. I've always wanted to share the uh, conversion story as recounted by Jerina Lee. She was a former slave uh, in the 1800s. And she didn't grow up a believer, but then she heard a sermon when she was in Philadelphia by the bishop of the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. She wound up becoming one of the most powerful preachers for the African Methodist Episcopal Church herself. But she describes her conversion this way, and I think I've got the words up there. She says this, when she finally realized God's forgiveness, she says this, that instant, it appeared to me as if a garment which had entirely enveloped my whole person, even to my finger's ends, split at the crown of my head, and was stripped away from me, passing like a shadow from my sight, when the glory of God seemed to cover me in its stead. That moment, though hundreds were present, I did leap to my feet and declare that God, for Christ's sake, had pardoned the sins of my soul. Great was the ecstasy of my mind, for all other sins were swept away together. That day was the first when my heart had believed and my tongue had made confession unto salvation. The first words uttered, a part of that song which shall fill eternity with its sound was, Glory to God. I just love that account in such a succinct manner. She talks about the greatness of realizing her being forgiven by God. What a gift it is to be forgiven by God himself, for, for him to put his name on the line for you. And always keep that end of his covenant, covenant with you. And the primary effect is to give him glory and to glorify his name. And it gets better if you go back to the latter part of verse 25. I, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake, and I will never think of them again. We sang about that earlier. Now this has always amazed me that this God, we always talk about the omnis, right? He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's also omniscient, which means what? He what? Knows all things. Knows all things. Has the capacity, obviously, not to forget anything. And yet, out of his unconditional love, he chooses to do what? He can forget something. <laughs> and it's our sin. There's only one thing he ever forgets, and that's our sin. Not because he's forgetful at all, but because he desires to do that. That's the loving father who remembers the sins no more. I loved Mark's story about how patient Al was with him. Took a couple of months to get the phone back, but, uh, but I just love that act of grace, that initial grace. And, and here's another father story I found. Are any of y'all familiar with Grantland? It's, it's a sports blog that ESPN operates. Caleb, tell me you know it. Okay, I knew you would in, in Austin. It's wonderful to read. Uh, ESPN operates it. The chief editor is, is named Shea Serrano, and I like to read his stuff sometimes. And he shared recently about how he, he was heading home from work one day, and he had just taken the exit ramp, and his car just died on him. Just died. So, so he pulled over. The car sputtered one time and then just died a second death, and he tried to restart it, couldn't do it. And, and he has a less than vast knowledge of auto mechanics, and so he called the tow people. They towed his car. It was deposited in his driveway at his home. And, of course, trying to be masculine, he popped the hood and fiddled with the wires, fiddled with the hoses, and that didn't do any good. So he closed the hood, and he did what he knew he needed to do was go to someone who knew a little bit about cars. And so he called his father. 
And his father listened as Shea explained what had happened. And his father said immediately, I'll come up there tomorrow after work. Now keep in mind, Shea's father lived 215 miles from his son. And he was going to drive those 215 miles after driving a city bus for 10 hours. And that's just what he did. And he arrived at the doorstep uh, three hours after driving and and after being uh, before that on a bus route for 10 hours had deposited the uh, bus at the depot and came along. He pulls up, says hello to his son, hugs him, walked back out to the driveway with his tool chest and went to the car. And the son was waiting there in uh, the living room. And it took about 15 seconds. His father came out from under the hood, (laughs) slammed it down, uh, went up into the house, returned the wrench to the toolbox, and uh, Shay said, well, what was wrong with it? You know, do you need other tools or something? He He said, no, we're done. I said, well, well, what was it? He said, ah, we're done. He said, Dad, I want to know what was wrong with it. Uh, son, it was out of gas. <laughs> he said, now, pretty good story, but he said, what was amazing was that Shay's dad stayed there, ate a meal with him, and then went back 215 miles, 430 miles round trip after driving a bus for 10 hours. He said, the amazing thing was his father never harassed him, berated him about it, even as they shared that meal together, didn't even bring it up at all. Matter of fact, nine years later, at the time of his writing this reflection about his father, his father still had never mentioned that embarrassing incident to him. And Shea said at the close, that's the kind of dad I want to be. That's the kind of God we have when it comes to something so much more critical, when we deal with the sin, the separation in our life, the sin that separates us from him. He'll forget about it if only we sincerely ask for forgiveness. You know, sometimes you and I, it's harder for us to forgive, right? And we might say, well, I'll forgive, but I'm not going to forget. That's what's phenomenal to me is God actually does. And I think really only He can fully do that. And it just gets even better going over to the wonderful bookend to the right in your Bible, chapter 44, verse 22. Beautiful words, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Scattered them like the morning mist. I came to realize this again recently. I'm sorry, another South Africa story, but here it is. Uh, We were up on Signal Mountain waiting to see the sunset. No better place to see a sunset. I hope you guys can maybe get there. You're already looking at each other and plotting. Now look back up at me, T. Okay, you're good. Uh, but I hope you guys get to that when you head out there uh, this next week. Incredible place to see a sunset. I'd never been up there, but Nick and Deanna and I got up there. And it was amazing when we first got up there. There were guys who were hang gliding, and like they would fly almost right above you and then get, go back over the cliff. And an incredible view uh, of, of the ocean, just, just, you know, virtual panoramic. It's just incredible. And we were waiting for the sunset because we heard that was just a legendary place for that. And um, all of a sudden... They call them the tablecloth clouds in South Africa. And they can suddenly swoop down when you least expect it and just envelop the top of a mountain where you might find yourself. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, it was this beautiful, pristine, clear day, and all of a sudden this cloud in the distance comes along, and it just enveloped us. got really cold, too, by the way, but it just enveloped us in this thick cloud. And, and, and you couldn't see, you could barely see the sun, but you could not see the hang gliders. I'm assuming they made it okay. And really, you couldn't see anything past the cliff there. Could not see that ocean out there. It was incredible. 
And it was just so thick. And, and, and I thought about that later on. I thought, you know, in a way, we might tell ourselves, you know, my sins are too thick. And the cloud of the sins that surround me, envelop me, sometimes seemingly to spiritually immobilize me, paralyze me, they're too thick. Nothing I can do about it. And I think the evil one wants you to think that. But our sins are not too thick for God, thanks be to him. I think more about, how many of y'all been to San Francisco before? Have you seen the, a lot of you, seen the fog rolling over uh, the bay and uh, the bridge. And it's just really cool to watch in the morning. And it could just envelop all that, but suddenly the sun gets to that certain point and just bakes it away. And it just dissipates. And when you and I ask God for forgiveness, it dissipates. He eradicates our sin. Eradicates it. Erases it. And do we realize the significance of that? I love the story that a 20th century, the greatest theologian of the 20th century was probably Karl Barth. Cool guy, brilliant guy. He used to preach on Sundays to inmates at a prison in his hometown of uh, uh, Basel, Switzerland. And one Sunday he preached on Ephesians 2.8 where it says what? For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of of God. And to illustrate his point, he shared a Swiss legend that was very familiar probably to the Swiss inmates there. It's about the horse rider of Lake Constance. And some say it's a true story. That Lake Constance is, is there. It connects with the Rhine River. It's at the northern end of the Alps. And there was a horse rider, allegedly, who crossed the river at night when it was frozen, not even realizing that he was crossing this huge lake. He just thought he was on some open uh, road there, some open rock, and he gets across. <laughs> and he gets to the other side, and people are just slack-jawed who are there at the shore saying, do you realize what you just did? They said, you just rode across Lake Constance. You are lucky to be alive. And, and dawn came along, and the man turned around and looked and saw what had happened, and indeed he had crossed Lake Constance without realizing it, and he broke down and wept and was horrified for a moment and then exceedingly grateful. Here he was crossing over something that would have doomed him in mortal danger, but then looking back, he realizes how grateful he is. Well, that applies to you and me. Miraculously being safe after you and I are doomed, crossing over that abyss of sin, and yet, because of the cross of Christ, we can look back and be thankful, not realizing at the time just how bad a shape we were in. By his grace, our sins are blown away. They're just tossed into oblivion. And, and, and that's good to know because sometimes you and I, people who tend to process a lot, you know, we can relive the old sins. We can run the old tapes. We can beat ourselves up sometimes without realizing that he has forgiven us. And God himself doesn't bring up those old tapes regarding you and what you've done in the past. He never parades them out, you know? Sometimes we're tempted to do that. I think that's why Jesus said, you know, you should forgive 70 times 7. Why? Because it's harder for us. We can forgive, but it's hard to forget, and it's a process, and we've got to do it over and over again. Not with God. It's finished. It's, it's completed. It's in the past. He forgives and forgets. And I love the appeal at the end of this verse. It says, oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Now, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before the advent of Jesus, and yet somehow, 
Who did Isaiah know he was talking about? He probably didn't have a full understanding of it, but I, I think of him seeing some sign, some event, some person, some happening out in the distance, out on the horizon, just, just like a boat where you see one way out on the horizon that's just dipping down, and yet maybe there's one coming up. And what it was, obviously, was a cross. It was a cross. There's a wonderful author these days named Brene Brown. Anybody ever read anything about Brene Brown? She's great. And she recounted about coming back to the church fold after many years of being away and having been disillusioned. But then she realized that Christ really got hold of her. She said, suddenly the whole Jesus thing clicked. She said, I realized what it was all about and that some of that disillusionment was my own doing and replaying the tapes and all. And she explained it this way, and I think we have it up on the screen. She said, people would want love to be unicorns and rainbows. So then you send Jesus and people say, oh my God, life is hard. Life is sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is rebellious. As Leonard Cohen sings, love is not a victory march. It's a broken hallelujah. Love isn't hearts and bows. It is very controversial. In order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. Whether it's your expectations of a person, your idea about who you are, there has to be a death for forgiveness to happen. In all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. All of a sudden, it becomes clear why Christians take forgiveness to heart. The blood on the floor is Christ's own. So let me appeal to you at this moment to return to him. You know, let him forgive you. If for no other reason, because you've got work to do. Now, we have these wonderful bookends that you have in Isaiah 43, 44. Can I tell you, just in a nutshell, about two other wonderful bookend passages. One is the calling of Peter, Simon Barjona. The other is the restoration. Now, you remember when he was called? He saw Jesus do something miraculous after he kind of smart-mouthed Jesus, and then Jesus performs this miracle. And what does Peter say? Do you remember? Depart from me, for I am, you remember, a sinful man. Please just depart from me. What does Jesus say immediately? Hey, come with me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Where's the bookend of that? Peter's restoration. After the resurrection, after the one who denied him so publicly, failed so miserably, Simon, do you love me? Okay, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. No need to wallow around anymore in this cesspool of sin in which you find yourself or which you let yourself sit in. Offer your confession to God, this amazing God, this unbelievable God, this unconditional God whose love for you is so great and his forgiveness for you is unilateral. It all comes from him. And if you can realize the magnitude of that, having once been doomed once been lost and yet now found, it's time to ask him for that forgiveness today. Let's pray together. Thank you for that grace that sets us free, O oh God. Those of us who have been so prodigal in our lives and yet you are so extravagant in your grace towards us, help us once again to realize 
the vastness of your forgiveness. And as we heard earlier, the vastness that stretches from east to west, the vastness that stretches from two nail-scarred hands, because of that event, because of your son, who came that we might experience fullness of forgiveness by the shedding of his blood, help us to give ourselves over again to you with greater fullness, with greater commitment, greater gusto. Help us to begin doing that now. We pray these things in your name. Amen.